Welcome to the Nutrition Tidbits Podcast. This is Gloria Fang, Editor-in-Chief for HealthCasa.com. Haven't we all heard new parents joke that they wish their newborn comes with a manual? There are many myths about children's nutrition, and I'm happy to be joined by pediatrician and parenting expert, Dr. Laura Jana, author of Food Fights. She's here today to debunk common diet myths some parents come to believe. Dr. Jana, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, and on such a good topic as well. That's perfect. Let's start with the most famous phrase, feed a fever, starve a cold. Any scientific evidence that we should even attempt doing that? You know, it's actually very interesting because when my co-author and I started researching that for our book, we included a little segment on feed a fever, starve a cold. We had people argue that it was starve a fever, feed a cold, vice versa. Where did that come from? (laughs) I actually think it dates back to the 1500s. And most of what we do these days, we don't base on what people thought in the 1500s. So no, there's not a whole lot of merit. Now, I say it half jokingly, but sometimes that's what you end up doing anyways, because you don't necessarily have much of a chance when you're starving a cold because a lot of kids don't want to eat when they're sick. So there is a real topic there in that a lot of parents worry about not feeding their children when they're sick, and they really can take food off their worry list. It's the liquids, and preferably something with calories, because we know that when kids don't get enough calories, they feel worse. Um, But you don't need to worry about the food. And feeding a fever, there's no relevance there, really. Quite honestly, people are more afraid of fever than they probably need to be, except that we know that when children have high fevers, they feel better when it comes down. You're not making the cold go away, but you're making your child feel better, and that's what you want to do for a fever. That's perfect. I guess the fluid intake is really what we're looking into. Absolutely. And again, you know, preferably something with calories in it, so you don't need to take away anything. I find a lot of parents jump right to the absolutely clear liquids and maybe one of the, you know, sort of the supplemental liquids that you get at the drugstore. Um, For a child who's not tolerating anything, you can do that. But for a child who's just not feeling well, if they want to have their glass of milk or for an infant who wants their breast milk or formula, there's absolutely no reason to take that away. And again, that extra calories and the extra nutrition often helps kids feel a little bit better than they would otherwise. That's perfect. Since we're talking about fluids with calories, let's move on to milk. Now, does milk really cause more mucus production? You know, again, it's interesting because milk has gotten a bit of a bad rap for kids who are sick. And I find both the the thought that it causes more mucus and also that it makes kids' stomachs more upset and that they vomit more and things. In, In reality, it's been shown that that really doesn't affect that many children. It was very common, even amongst pediatricians, to recommend that parents stop giving milk when kids were sick, had vomiting, diarrhea, those sorts of things. What I find now, and this tends to be what's much more mainstream these days, is If you find that your child doesn't tolerate milk well when they're sick, then you can cut back on it for a while. But for a majority of children, they do just fine. If they're mucousy because of a stuffy nose cold, they're going to be mucousy anyways. Um, The other tip with that I oftentimes find is that people try to give their kids milk in whatever form, whether it's true milk or formula or breast milk, right when they're waking up in the morning. And for anybody with a snotty nose cold, that's when there's a lot of pooling of mucus and they're more likely to throw up then anyways. So it may not be the milk's fault. Mm, Interesting to know. Now, what about sugar? Now, we often heard that around the Halloween time. Does sugar cause hyperactivity? You know, a very common belief amongst parents, I have three children of my own, and I also own a child care center with 200 kids in it, and there are days when I would swear that it was the sugar, and we don't even serve much sugar. 
But when you look at the studies, it's it's really not. It doesn't pan out. It's not sugar's fault necessarily. There are there was an interesting diet back in the 70s that really got people looking at the well. Should we take sugar away and it decreases the hyperactivity and things? But it really doesn't pan out. And there's been a lot of studies in the past 10 years or so um, that really don't show sugars to blame. Now the thing that's interesting to point out here is when you're looking for something to blame, it's easy for it to look like it's it's the cause. So it's very common amongst parents, especially because we're all paying so much attention now to healthy diets for our kids or the amount of sugar they're getting when they get that big old cupcake covered in frosting that we're looking for it and then they don't sleep well, they're bouncing off the walls and it's easy for us to perceive that as being a sugar problem because we expect it to be a problem. That is so true. Now, what about supplements? I often heard people talk about multivitamins for kids. You know, one camp talked about you know they don't need vitamins just if they're eating well, and the other camp said you know it, you know it's an insurance. What's your thoughts on multivitamins on a regular basis? We do have a very informed listenership, I would imagine, and you know what most people in the field of diet, nutrition, um, health realize is that for the most part, a lot of people have a really good diet, kids included, or enough of a good diet that they get what they need. Now, before I say you don't need vitamins, there are definitely kids who need them. There are definitely circumstances when you need them. If somebody if somebody believes in a vegetarian or vegan diet, there may be things that they're missing that they absolutely need supplements for. And then there are some things that people forget, like iron and vitamin D. And you know now people are looking at the um, omega fatty acids as supplements that certainly can be useful. And some people just don't get enough of those in the diet. So the bottom line on vitamins is. A lot of kids are getting what they need, and quite honestly, especially when parents are prone to fighting with their children over what they're eating, if it gives parents peace of mind that they're getting their kids what they need while they're working on healthier eating habits, then they serve a very valuable purpose. And like I said, those specific instances where you want to make sure your child, you know, the younger kids especially, but you know, getting enough iron, getting enough of the you know vitamin D, especially in breastfed babies,、um, and The circumstances where we find that supplementing with something like omega fatty acids can really improve a pregnant woman's diet, an infant's diet, a child's diet. Those are all good things to do. So vitamins aren't inherently bad, and they certainly stand to be very helpful in many instances, but not always necessary. Great insights. Now you talked about omega three, and we often heard about, you know, certain things that can possibly enhance a child's IQ. So, are there any evidence that a diet, a good diet and nutrition, can actually enhance a child's IQ? Well, you know, until you said enhance, like actually enhance the IQ. It's a little bit easier to discuss. As people in this field know, it's very, very difficult to distill it right down to the cause and effect. You eat something, you take something, and it's going to boost your numbers on your IQ by this many points. Now, there is very good evidence to suggest that there are things that we do and things that we eat that can improve. Intelligence, performance, behavior—all those sorts of things that factor into something like IQ. And again, remembering that IQ is just one way that we test sort of what we're looking for—the improved skills, cognition.、Um, we've already talked about the omega fatty acids, but clearly,、um, you know, we're talking about the DHA. A lot of people don't necessarily put together the fact that when you're talking about fish oil, you're talking about omega fatty acids, but you're also talking about DHA and AI that are added into infant formulas and a lot of foods. 
that's all one and the same. And we know that that's crucial for proper brain and eye development. Really important, pregnant moms, like I said, I mean, this is getting back to pregnant moms, infants, and children. There was actually a study recently that just came out looking at um, performance of uh, preschool children who were given supplemental um, omega-3s. And they actually performed better on one of the standardized tests that we use to look at those things. So again, that's very important. The other side of that, which isn't as concrete, like what can you take as a supplement, what can you put in your child's diet, we also have good studies that show that if children eat breakfast, they score better on tests, they do better in school. Um, again, it's not necessarily the distill it down to which things they ate and how much and when, but we know that going without good nutrition certainly can impact a child's performance and, and behavior and all the things that we're hoping to enhance for them. That's good to know. Now, tell us more about your book, Dr. Jenna. Well, you know, Food Fights is actually my second book, and it's funny that you mentioned at the uh, intro here, Wishing You Could Go Home with a Manual. My first book is called Heading Home with Your Newborn from Birth to Reality, and it really mm -hmm. was meant to be the things I wished I had time to sit and talk to new parents about. And not just the medical, but kind of putting it all together, the practical reality side of now here's the baby, what do you do next? Food Fights was the next book, um, next topic that we tackled because we found that it, you know, at this day and age, everybody seems to be aware of the childhood obesity epidemic, the importance of nutrition, but parents are left sort of wondering, first of all, what to do exactly, and second of all, so many people say, well, there's a good idea, but how do I make that happen? You know, if your child's having a meltdown in the grocery store aisle, or you're sitting at a restaurant and the only thing they'll order are those chicken nuggets or the hamburger or the pizza, um, parents are left wondering what to do. They may believe in doing the right thing, but they don't know how to get there. Food Fights is really a practical approach for parents on the what do I do now and how do I teach healthy habits, not just hide the healthy foods and what our kids get, not just supplement and, and you know, go, okay, now they're getting what they need, so I don't need to. This is how do you teach your kids healthy, lifelong habits, but with an eye on reality. We're both, my co-author and I, we're both parents. We have four kids between us, lots of experience with young children, and if I can't get my kids to do it, I don't tell anybody else they should be doing it either. <laughs> That's great. I mean, because there are lots of theory everyone talks about, but in reality, what really works and, you know, do the best for the child. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Jenna. Oh, it's my pleasure. We've been talking to pediatrician Dr. Laura Jenna, author of Food Fights. For more healthy eating tidbits and information about this show, go to healthcastle.com.